I'm sorry, Romans chapter 1, verse 8. Romans chapter 1, verse 8 through 10. And God's an inspired, inerrant, sufficient word reads, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Always in my prayers, making request, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. Father, we ask a blessing upon the reading of your word. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, would you illuminate this text for us? Not only so that we can understand it, but also so we can apply it to our life. And so, Father, we ask that you would search our hearts and our minds. And I ask that it's only your words, your thoughts that are heard here this morning. Pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I have titled this, Saved to Serve. Saved to Serve. And I don't want to go back and rehash where we have been, but it seems like it's been a long, long time since we started Romans. And it's only been a, a month or so. Or two, I'm not sure how long even, but a, a couple sermons anyways into it. But it seems like it's been a long time, so I just want to go back just as a brief recap, just to kind of refresh your memory where we have been to see where we are going to be going. And we started out with the prologue, verses 1 through 7, as the prologue to this Paul's letter to the Romans. And it started by introducing, Paul introduced himself as the messenger. He said, I am a slave of Christ. That's who Paul says that he is, and he's a slave called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel of God is the message that Paul has. The messenger is Paul. The message is the gospel of God. The message is, is, yes, is Jesus, certainly the work on the cross, but the the, the message of the gospel is work, is, is what has been provided by God for each and every one of us through the work of the cross by the obedience of the Son. That is the message. With that message comes the cost. There's no such thing as a free lunch. It costs someone something. Grace costs someone something. Grace costs the Father his Son, and grace costs the Son his life. Therefore, we have been given a call. We have been given a charge to take this message to the world, wherever that world may be. That was the prologue to this letter. And so now Paul is going to enter into an introduction in more of a typical um, fashion of, of letter writing. He's going to get into the introduction, which will be for a few verses uh, into this gospel, or into this letter. And we really, uh, in the first 17 verses of Romans, it kind of gives us a synopsis of the whole letter. All the doctrines that are in Romans, the rich doctrines and theology that we have in Romans, is all comprised right here in these few verses. And so we could certainly take a year to get through these things, but we'll get through them as we go through the letter to the, to the Romans here. And, but, and so for, but for today, I just want to start with first, verse 8. As Paul transitions from the prologue into the introduction, and he starts with first. And it gives us a sense that there's going to be a numerical checklist, if you will. There's going to be a first, there's going to be a second, there's going to be a third. And it's interesting watching uh, commentator, uh, commentator writers, yeah, commentary writers. It's interesting uh, to hear them grapple with, why doesn't Paul ever get to a second? It's just first. He says, first, 
In verse 8, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. Well, I don't think it's that much of a, of a problem in, in just ending up or starting with the first and not really going on to the second. As he enters and gets onto this on-ramp here, of the, one of the greatest letters ever written or greatest letters in the Bible, he starts with first. As we sometimes say, first things first. Maybe you yourself have used that language. First and foremost, or you may say second to none. What are we implying when we say that? We are implying that there is nothing, there is no second. There's nothing that comes after that, and that's what Paul is writing to the Roman Christians that he never met, by the way. He never met these people. And he's writing to the Roman Christians, and he is reminding them. And we, too, need to be reminded this morning that everything starts with God. There is nothing before. There is nothing after. Everything starts with God, and everything is about God. That's what Paul wants to lay out as he's going to get into some some weighty matters into this letter. He wants the people who are going to be reading this letter to know and to acknowledge, first and foremost, everything starts with God. If you get confused, default to back to first. Everything starts with God, and everything is about God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. I was reading this article, and it was something about the literature's greatest opening paragraphs or something, and I get off in the weeds sometimes. I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. I like older books. And as I was reading down through that list and reading some of the, the opening lines of some of the greatest literature, supposedly, according to this author, ever written, and the Bible was there. And I was like, wow, that's interesting that they would acknowledge that. I mean, obviously, it's a piece of literature, but I want to reference that this morning. And, and, and that is that how, that how our Bible starts out. How does it start out in Genesis 1.1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The gospel of God came through his son, Jesus, and therefore Paul is thankful, or his thankfulness is also through Jesus because everything starts with God. In the beginning, God. Not in the beginning, anything else. Not in the beginning, you or I. Not in the beginning, my thoughts, my wishes, my desires, my dreams. No, in the beginning, God. Everything is about God. Everything starts and ends with God. Paul continues in verse 8, and he says that, I, at first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because, he's going to tell them why he's thankful, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Now, obviously not to all the world, obviously not to the whole world. So when we see this, this word, we speak this way, way sometimes too, right? When we say all, when we say these types of things, it's in, it's in its context and it's stressing the great impact that it has had. But what Paul is saying here is that your faith has been proclaimed. Your faith has gone through the whole known world specifically the Roman Empire. As we think about the Roman Empire being the, being the hub of, of, of this area, right, in all the cultures, all the countries, all the people that travel through Rome, and then from there the impact that these Roman Christians have had goes out from there. That's what Paul is acknowledging, that their faithfulness and their proclamation of this gospel of God has gone throughout the whole known world. In Acts chapter 18, verses 1 to 2, we, we, we can see this there where, uh, where, where it says this. Um, 
After these things, he, Paul, left Athens, went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. You see this little interesting connection here. Paul is saying here in Romans that your faithfulness has gone throughout the whole world. And here Luke, the historian, as he records this for us in Acts, is, is giving proof to that. That saying that, that as the Romans, as the Jewish Christian, as the, and, and as the, 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 the ethnic Jew, as they battled, Claudius said, enough of this. And they were both expelled from Rome. And by that also, the gospel was taken throughout the whole Roman world as we see it here. But I also want you to notice here in verse 8, in verse 8, that Paul is not saying your faith is seen, your faith is noticed throughout the whole world. He's not saying that it has come to my attention any of those types of things. Rather, Paul says, because your faith, in verse 8, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Now, this word proclaimed, this is an active faith. This is a loud faith. This is not a passive faith. This is not a faith that sits idly by. This is a faith that is active. This is a faith that is loud. It got them kicked out of Rome, some of them anyways. This is a faith that is very Involved A faith that is not active, I would offer to you, is not a faith at all. A faith that is not active is not a faith at all. You know, I, I was reminded of us as Mennonites, especially for us who are traditional Mennonites or, or cradle Mennonites, as we're sometimes labeled. Uh, for those like me, born <laughs> generational Mennonites. Uh, and, and I studied some of our Mennonite history, of course. And, and Mennonites were known as the quiet in the land. And, and they were known to be the quiet, the passive of the land. And as persecution and as things came upon them, they would quietly move on. They didn't stir the pot. They didn't, they didn't cause a stir. But they themselves moved on. And that's how they got along with the people of the land rather than causing trouble there. And, and there, there may be something said for that. There may be a place for this approach to be the quiet in the land. I remember sitting in church one Sunday. Um, that had been a long time ago. Um, our girls were a little bit, anyways, spare you the story as I go down memory lane. Uh, but I remember Cheryl telling me as she desperately wanted me to engage with church, as she desperately wanted me to engage with faith, with gauge with God, instead of just being a husband, Cindy, but, she gave me this verse, and she said, this is a verse for you. It's 1 Thessalonians 4.11, where Paul tells the church at Thessalonica, he says, make it, your, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. And I was like, yeah, I like that verse. I like that. That's me. I can just live quietly, work with my hands. That is a verse for me. I never stuck with that verse. Maybe I should have. Um, but there's something to be said for the quiet of the land. There's something to be said. Those go faithfully day by day about their business, is there not? However, that's not what Paul has in mind here. 
Paul does not have in mind here that they are being passive in their faith. Paul has in mind that they proclaimed their faith. They were very active to the point of being expelled from Rome for their faith. Much is made of discipline or discipleship, I should say. Much is made of discipleship. We hear it so much. I heard so much of it that my eyes glassed over these past few days and had some interesting lunch conversations because I've got opinions on everything. And, and, and you look at discipleship, and sometimes that we think that discipleship and church are the same thing. They're not the same thing. They're two sides of the same coin, but discipleship and church are not the same thing. Sometimes we think, well, I don't necessarily, I'm not necessarily active on Sunday morning, but, but I'm, in, I'm a disciple maker. I, I, I meet in my small group. I have coffee with my friends or my girlfriends or whatever it may be. And in that way, I am doing the work right. Absolutely. And I would encourage you to continue doing that if that is you. And if you're not, to start doing that. But discipleship flows out of the church. It's because of our faith in Christ. It's because of what happens on a Sunday morning that through the rest of the week we are discipleship makers. And then I would offer to you that in discipleship flows back into the church as those who are drawn closer to Christ find themselves in the pew on a Sunday morning. It's a circular thing, right? They're not the same thing, but they are two sides of the same coin. It is the call of the message to go and make disciples. We have it in Matthew chapter 28. Go, therefore, it's better said, translated over into English. It doesn't make quite as much sense, but it's as you go. It's not go, therefore. As you go about your daily work, as you go about wherever you find yourself throughout the days, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's the call of the message. That's the instruction we have been given as Christian people, as discipleship makers. Discipleship and the church, they're not necessarily the same thing, but they are two sides of the same coin. Remember that. How are we doing? How are we doing in that? How are you doing in that? It's something that I've had to reflect upon on myself. How am I doing? CMC, speaking of our affiliation, their mission statement is to mature and multiply churches both globally and locally, or locally and globally. Might have that backwards. Probably locally than globally. To mature and multiply churches. And they have this goal. We've, there's only like 120 churches that are part of CMC. And they have this goal of, of growing and planting enough churches that by 2030, there's 160 churches. That's, that's the goal. That's the target. I think it's 160. I might have the number off also. But I think that's the number, is that there, there's this desire to plant churches. There's a desire to grow as a denomination. There's a desire to, to be discipleship makers. There's a desire to, to have this as of our objective. And I can still remember the one sermon, the one night that, 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 the, that the man shared. I kept talking about this box out here. I'm just like, what's this box he keeps talking about? And it just didn't click with me at all. But I get the idea that we are to multiply, that we are to do some of these things. But I wondered, and as I got to thinking and as I had multiple conversations with church planners and also those who do church revitalization um, and the difference in the interaction between those two, and I thought, well, I'm certainly not a church planter. I've never seen myself as a church planter. I'm too much of an, of an introvert to be a church planter. 
I thought I could never be a church planner. Uh, but as I kept, I've kept, it's never left my mind. And, and so I come back and I offer to you, what would it look like? Or what if God were to call Hollygrove to plant a church? What would that look like? Where would it be? How are we multipliers? How are we discipleship makers? How are we expanding the kingdom of God? How is it that Paul here comes and tells these Romans that he's never met? Your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. How can Hollygrove enter into that journey that God wants to take each and every church through? And so I just put that out there and kind of place it off of, take it off of my shoulders to help you care or, or actually ask you to help carry that on your shoulders also with me as we reflect upon, I never thought I'm a church planter. It's never crossed my mind. But what if God is calling us to plant a church? What would that look like? And where would that be? Well, let us move on. It is this God whom the Roman Christians are proclaiming to the whole world that Paul now calls upon to be his witness. It is this God that was before the beginning of time. It is this God that Paul started out with first and foremost. It is this God that now Paul here in verse 9 calls upon to be his witness. Not all of Paul's letters were like the ones written to the Romans. He wrote some difficult letters also. Galatians, of course, being the most difficult one. 2 Corinthians was another difficult letter that Paul wrote to the churches. But in this particular letter here, Paul here is calling upon God as his witness that he prays unceasingly for them, he says in verse 9. And he does desire to come to them. But up to this point, he has not been able to do so. And he's saying, as God is my witness, that is my desire. I know I'm writing this letter to you. I know we're communicating. I know I've sent discipleship makers and people to you in Rome. My desire is to come, but I've not been able to. May God act as my witness in behalf of that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, he says something similar, but in, in, in the inverse effect that he has. And he says this, he says, but I call God as my witness to my soul that to spare you I did not come to Corinth again. Again, two different scenarios that Paul is using. One, that the people desired him to come. Another gives a sense that they didn't desire him to come. And Paul is saying both times, God is my witness in these areas and in these situations. Here, Paul calls as, as a witness that I do pray for you constantly. I is my desire to come to you. But the point being is this. Can you think of a better witness on your behalf than in the omniscient, omnipresence of God? Can you think of someone who can witness on your behalf, that knows your thoughts, that knows my thoughts, that knows my heart more than anyone else, that we can lay ourselves out and, and, and call upon this God to be my witness. My mind was, sorry, Cheryl, I know you banned, you banned certain stories from me, but I think there's a stipulation, there's a time. What do you call that? I think the statutory time has passed or something like that. And so I need to, I need to do this again. It's not a bad story. I've, I've really set it up. Now it's not even going to be a good one. Um, but I, I remember as a, as a young boy, hmm, no, okay, as a, as a boy, as a boy, next door there was a lot full of, semi-trailers. Do you remember this story? See, nobody remembers it, Cheryl, so I can tell it. But I remember as a little young lad, my mind, I'm, 
I was always on God, no matter how far away, my mind was always on God. I remember laying under the one semi-trailer, being the contemplative mystic that I am, and just dreaming, and I thought, wow, because I was always getting in trouble, and the trouble found me, but I was under the trailer, and I thought, even if every single one of these semi-trailers is stacked on top of each other, God can still see me. That'll scare a young kid straight. <laughs> but that's the point, right? That it's this God who searches our hearts, who knows everything about us in the most intimate way. It is this God that call, Paul calls upon to be his witness. And it is this God that you and I can call upon to be our witness in all aspects of our life also. But before moving on, I also want you to notice in this statement of Paul here in verse 9, Paul just can't help himself in proclaiming God. In verse 9 here, he uses the connector word gar, just pulling what was passed forward, and he says, for God. He has a comma there. It's not there in the original, but the translators put that there for us, appropriately so. And if you just take that center little phrase out, what Paul is saying, for God is my witness. You notice that. For God, that's the point. For God is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. See, that's the thought that Paul wants to convey. Paul wants to convey to the people that my God, that this God, that, that, that my God is my witness as to how unceasingly I'll make mention of you in my prayers as he continues. But the point that I'm trying to make right here is he has this little, this little, this little phrase right in the middle between those two commas where it says, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son is my witness. Why does he have to insert that little phrase? For God is my witness. Just go with that, Paul. But he says, no. For God, comma, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son is my witness. See, the word here is serve and save to serve. Paul's whole life, his whole focus, his whole desires, everything about Paul, arguably the greatest Christian who has ever lived, everything about him revolves about God. He breathes God, and he does it here also. And he says, whom I serve. Serve just equals carrying out of religious duties. Carrying out, or, or carrying out religious duties in, in human beings. It can be of any religion, not necessarily just Christian, but it's always tied. Um, the Greek word is always tied to some religious activity of some sort. And, and, it, and it can also be and may be betterly translated as worship. Serve worship. The two cannot be divorced from each other. For instance, I want to give to you here in Romans as I attempt to make this point in Romans chapter 7, verse 15. In Romans chapter, see, see, Revelation is not a continual thought process. It's a circular thing. So that's what can get so confusing about Revelation. And here in chapter 7, it's really, uh, uh, John is talking about the end, but it comes all the way here in chapter 7, where we have this interlude in heaven, 
where there's 144,000, and we're not going to get, I want, I want to jump right to verse 15, where, where John says what he saw in heaven, that these are the ones who washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. Verse 15, for this reason, they, the ones who have washed their robes and the ones who are spotless, the ones whose sins are gone, these are before the throne of God, and they serve him. That's our word. And they serve him night and day in the temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle. Tabernacle. He will come and dwell. He will put himself over them. But, but they will, we will, those in heaven are serving, are worshiping the Lamb. Get to verse or chapter 22 of Revelation. Revelation chapter 22, verse 3. Our Bible starts out with creation story, and then we all mess it up. And then the Bible story ends with a recreation story. Revelation chapter 22, verse 3. says, there will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his bondservants will serve him. Again, our word will serve slash worship him. Sometimes we have these ideas that in heaven, you know, we're just going to be floating around on a cloud. And let me tell you, for a young boy or an old man with ADD, the last thing you want to think about is floating around on some cloud playing a harp, right? And we get these ideas of, of heaven. And, and what I'm saying is no. Heaven is going to be a reflection in a perfected sense of the earth itself. As we serve and as we worship here, we'll do it in a perfected state in heaven, but we will indeed be working and worshiping in heaven as we are here on earth. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. So in case you're thinking, yeah, you're all crazy. Maybe, but in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, before the curse, right? Genesis chapter 2 comes before Genesis chapter 3, which is the curse. God told Adam and Eve, then the Lord God, Yahweh, took the man, put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Right from the beginning, in a perfected state, men and women had responsibilities of working. It is through work that we worship God. It is through the work that we have been given as we serve each other, as we serve in our workplaces. It is an act of worship. It is a part of worshiping, of being faithful to the task that God has given us to do. If you're a banker, if you're a farmer, if you're a poultry producer, if you're a nurse, if you're a doctor, fill in the blanks. If you're a solar technician, if you're, um, if you're an artist, if you're, you know, go down the line, right? That is your act of service. Romans 12.1, right? Romans 12.1 tells us that effect. I should just turn here. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living, holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. See, everything begins with God. Everything starts with God. And what Paul is telling the folks right here as he starts the introduction to this letter to this church in Rome, that service and worship are, hand, are, are one and the same. They go together. And Paul is telling them here that 
For this God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel, that was the work that he was given to do. It is what he wants them to know, that worship and service go hand in hand. Verse 10. Verse 10, it is this God who was from the beginning, who is omnipresent, who is omniscient, this God whom I call upon to be my witness, Paul says, now is also the God I submit my will to. You see it in verse 10. Always in my prayers making requests, if perhaps now at last by the will of God. Sometimes we will hear that type of, of, of language. Uh, well, we, you know, if, it, if, it's, if the Lord wills, I will do so and so, and there's certainly evidence for that. But it's a much stronger sense that Paul is saying here. Paul is completely submitting himself here to God. This is a constant uh, involuntary act that Paul has, and it needs to be ours as well. We have it in 2 Corinthians that gives us a sense, that gives us a sense of, um, of the submittedness I might have just coined a word, but I'm good for those. Um, I'm not sure that's a word, but it's a, it's a sense of, of Paul's spirit, that he completely submits himself to Christ. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 12, verse 7, he says, because of the, it's, it's the thorn in the flesh. You, you, you know the story. I know preachers aren't supposed to assume that people know the story, but I don't want to take the time to read it. But it's the thorn in the flesh, where Paul prayed three times, Lord, if you would just take this thorn out of my side. And God said, Paul? My grace is sufficient for you. And Paul ends and surrenders to that and says, Therefore, verse 10, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distress, with persecution, with difficulties for Christ's sake. Everything is about God. Everything is about God. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That is the spirit that Paul has. He didn't make it up. He got it from Jesus. Jesus had the very same spirit. Matthew 26, verse 34. As Jesus was going to the cross, as he prayed in the garden, he said, and he went a little beyond them, and he fell on his face. The very Son of God fell upon his face before his heavenly Father, and he prayed, saying, My Father, if this is possible. He knew everything. If this is possible. Let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. We're going to see this often through Paul's letter to the Romans. We're going to get into some very weighty and some very heavy things. That's why I want to take a little bit of time and just spend on that submittedness. That that needs to be our spirit. We must understand everything starts with God. Everything is about God. Nothing's about me. Everything is about God. I'm somewhat looking forward to it and also quite timid in thinking about it. Coming to Romans chapter 9, and we may not get there for 10 years, but at this pace, but why are you laughing? Um, <laughs> but in Romans chapter 9, I, I found great comfort in Romans 9. In Romans 9, um, it's the story of the potter. And maybe at verse 19, Romans 9, starting at verse 19, where Paul is making this 
argument about the sovereignty of God. And he says, well, you will say to me, why does he, God, still find fault? For who can resist his will? If you're saying I cannot resist God's will, then why does God still find fault? Well, that will be an argument for another day. This is what I want you to hear in verse 20. Paul says, on the contrary. Who are you, O man? Who are you, O woman, who answers back to God? Everything is about God. Everything starts with God. Who are we to question God in this way? Paul then draws in this analogy. The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? I love that verse. Get this picture of a potter sitting on a chair with a lump of clay. He grabs a lump of clay. He molds it into whatever he wants to mold it in. He puts it aside. He gets another lump of clay from the same exact lump, and he does it again and does whatever he chooses. Except the potter is not just anybody. The potter is in the beginning God created you and I. I take great comfort. I don't know what kind of lump of clay I am. Sometimes I'm a pretty bad lump. And other times I think I'm, I think I'm pretty good, actually, if you want to know the truth. But whatever lump I am, I am the lump on purpose and for purpose, created to serve, created to worship, and whatever the task that he has given me to do. Not to fulfill James's needs and desires and wishes and wants, but for God. Everything is about God. Everything starts with God. Everything is about God. It has been said. Prayer is to sit open-handed before God. The same thing can be said about surrender to God. Sometimes you hear prayer. Brad and I were going through these little exercises about figuring out prayer. And, um, you know, you sit before God open-handed and just asking God, give me or whatever or give or however we approach that in prayer. And often we come with these preconceived ideas of what we want right? We come with these preconceived ideas of how we expect that God will answer those prayers. And that's fine. That, that's very good. <clears throat> but I would also offer to you that I think our surrender must be the same way as that. Our surrender must also be before God, open-handed, saying, God, here I am. Make me what you want to make me. Use me however you want to use me. And that will be good enough for me. Graham, I'm trying to think of the song we sang right before the, before the uh, sermon. Do you remember what number that was? That's where I'm at, right here, 577. Look at that. I see it right here, sure. My mind was on the page and not seeing it. My mind was just now drawn to that last verse of that. And so I want to I read that to you here in closing. We sang it. Where he sends, well, let me, let me go right from the beginning. Verse 4. Then in fellowship sweet we sit at his feet, or we'll walk by his side in the way. What he says we will do. Where he sends we will go. Never fear, only trust and obey. 
What he says we will do, where he sends we will go, do we mean it? Do we mean it? You have been saved to serve for a purpose, on purpose. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your servant, for your slave Paul, who totally and completely gave himself over to the service, to the work that you have given him to do. And Father, as we reflect, reflect upon our own position in life, our own day-to-day activities, Father, will you give us a heart for mission? Will you give us a heart to proclaim the gospel of God wherever we find ourselves? Will you give us a heart to view our work as worship? Will you give us a heart to see that whatever we're doing, it is on purpose and for a purpose, and will you give us a heart of surrender? I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.